Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you ever so much for joining me to once again banish another guest for the 32nd time. This week, my guest is a director and game developer who, alongside his colleagues at London's Fail Better Games, released in February of last year the excellent survival exploration RPG, Sunless Sea. A roguelike title that sees players take on the role of a steamship captain as they explore the Undersea, an underground ocean in which a Victorian London hides. Sunless Sea reviewed excellently and is currently sitting at a very admirable 81 out of 100 on Metacritic, which could be why next month sees the release of Sunless Sea's first expansion, The Submarina. My guest this week is the director of Sunless Sea and lead gameplay developer, also a man with an excellent name, Mr. Liam Welton. Hello, Liam. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. It's great to have you on. How are you today? Yeah, good. Yeah, feeling uh, feeling good. We're just coming up to, I don't know when this is going out, but we're about a month out of the release of Submariner. And so it's that kind of like giddy, ah, <laughs> time. <But it laughs> that comes with well. all... <laughs> that comes with all game development, the sort of end, oh, oh shit, and oh yes, and oh shit again, and then oh yes again when it finally gets released. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about you and your like game career then. Um, did you always want to be working in video games? Uh, like is there where the point you're at now, sort of an, acu- an accumulation of many years of hard work towards, you know, working as a director in the games industry? Or was it sort of like, ah, this seems like a, a strange direction to go in. Let's sort of follow it, kind of thing. I uh, so I'd always uh, I've always loved games, um, and uh, there was part of me that thought, oh, this would be a cool job, but I don't really have any of the uh, what I thought of as the core skills for uh, making video games. But I was really oh. into filmmaking, and uh, I was into uh, theatre. So I went away and um, did film at university and decided I didn't like that. And while I was doing that, I learned to um, code and do like uh, UI design and graphic design. Um, then I started freelancing uh, as a web developer and uh, then kind of got in touch with Fail Better Games and sort of went, it was like one of those moments where you suddenly a light switches on and you go, oh yeah, that thing that I'd, I've sort of always wanted to do, but felt I could never do. I've yeah. just, I've slowly over the last sort of like 10 years <laughs> built up like the skills to do it. So, um, yeah, I went for a, went for a job with them and, uh, I've been there ever since. So how long is that now? How long have you been with Fail Better? Uh, just cleared four years, which, um, four years. Yeah. Which, uh, the fun little uh, fun little fact: uh, five years is apparently the average length of time that people spend in the games industry, not just at one company, in the games industry in general. So, uh, if I if I make it one more year, I'll have made the average. <laughs> <laughs> I can sort of definitely see that, having worked in the games industry for three years myself, um, I can definitely see why five years is maybe the average. And then it maybe drops off a little bit after that. It's a long, tiring process making video games. And um, I imagine for four years now, you're sort of well-versed in the ups and downs of game development. Yeah, I mean, um, it's uh, the company's changed uh, a lot. So I've kind of, uh, I think the, the sort of like the experiences of working in different sized teams and on very different projects 
I've kind of managed to go through that all in one company because when I started, there were like four of us and now there are 16 and we've done mobile development. Uh, so, you know, uh, online kind of like uh, web-based games, uh, kind of traditional, uh, you know, video game RPGs. So I've had a chance to do a lot of different things. Um, and uh, I've definitely decided there are certain things I like doing more than others. <laughs> so uh, hopefully I get to do more of that in future. Let's talk a little bit about um, Sunless Sea then. Um, were you there when Sunless Sea was sort of like beginning or had it not started yet? Because it, it was originally a Kickstarter campaign, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So um, we started Sunless Sea... Um, about nine months after I started, and uh, it was a bit of a like bit of a rocky patch for the company um, game that we've been working on. Uh, it was actually like a game development platform uh, that we were working on. hadn't done quite as well as we'd hoped, and okay. uh, we were kind of like searching around for something that you know we thought people would really like, and we kind of set on this idea of. Uh, you know, sort of a top-down, like, naval RPG, which is something, like, none of us had, like, worked on a game like that before. So we sort of sat around a table and went, does this seem at all possible? And, <laughs> like, me and uh, the other, like, uh, developer looking at each other going, we've never even opened up uh, Unity before. Um, so we kind of, you know, we had a, like, a two-week, four-week kind of, like, uh, you know, scratchy period of just trying stuff out, seeing if uh, the tech would work for us. Uh, and then we were like, yeah, okay, this is not going to be, you know, super easy, but we can do this. So uh, we kind of like put together a pitch uh, and took it to Kickstarter and were pretty surprised uh, at how much people had gone for it, which is a nice surprise. Yeah, the initial goal was sixty thousand mm-hmm. pounds, and and you received around a hundred thousand from like four thousand backers, which yeah. is an excellent, excellent amount of people to be backing your video game. I was so certain we weren't going to make over a hundred thousand that I said I'd get a tattoo if we did. Uh, and I'm looking at it right now, great big anchor <laughs> tattoo on the side of my arm. <laughs> I love those kind of bets. <laughs> I kind of feel like if I if we ever do a Kickstarter in future again, uh, I've kind of got to put that as um, as one of the stretch goals again. So you know, <laughs> that's a, that's a really good idea. Actually, look look what happened last time. This can happen again. <laughs> or maybe just <laughs> yeah, based on the amount that gets pledged, it will go on a more obscene part of my body. Like like so, if you give me a million dollars, I'll put it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> or or of a more ridiculous design yeah. something absolutely incredibly amusing like if you donate this much this will scar my body forever <laughs> actually i tell you horrible design yeah i tell you what um if uh, it would be a lot of money to get me to get an insane clown posse tattoo because that would be labeling <laughs> me something that i definitely i do not a juggalo don't want to be mistaken for a juggalo <laughs> so then uh sunless was you know successfully funded and you went on to develop the game um since then it seems like this has 
been received excellently by like major sites like Eurogamer gave it like a 10 out of 10 and you know uh, IGN was like 8.3 and stuff like that big sites covering your game and giving it huge scores must have been really really exciting and really uh, giving it some pretty good promotion yeah I mean it was uh, it was kind of incredible um, especially as uh, I mean everyone everyone working on it uh really you know we kind of loved the game we were making but uh we sort of we sort of knew from about halfway through that it was going to be one of those like sort of marmite games where you either love it or you hate it um yeah and because it's got some it's got some like it tries to do some like weird and sometimes cruel stuff. Uh, <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, I think something that people latched onto was the fact that uh, it kind of stood out. Um, there aren't too many games uh, like it, and I think when you judge it by its, uh, you know, on 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 the standards that it sets for itself, um, people are kind of like, yeah, this is you know, this is like an excellent game. Like maybe, you know, maybe not, you know your favorite game but you just you kind of play it and you go that's something new that's something i haven't seen before yeah um, and uh that was uh when you're working on something and you're so close to it you don't even see that potential sometimes uh, and so it wasn't until it released and we started like hearing all of this feedback from people um particularly as uh we got we got reviews and everything when we entered early access, but then everyone like clams up, which uh, I'm very glad of. I'm glad that basically no one reviews early access games, uh, <laughs> but it means that we kind of went for like six months, or seven months of people playing it and basically everyone being very quiet and we were just going, right, so is anyone enjoying it? And then we launched and like got really nice write-ups and that was just, yeah, like, or on cloud nine for like the first sort of like <laughs> month of it being launched because couldn't believe it like that uh we were especially the i remember getting the euro gamer 10 out of 10 because it was the last one that um they gave out it was the last uh, uh oh, be- score yeah before they changed to their recommended system yeah. that they do now oh yeah. okay that wow that's even that's even cooler that's yeah, really so cool we um uh we we always like joke in the office that we're the last game to be better than halo <laughs> so on the back of some of C's success and the sort of uh enjoyment that people are coming you are now about to launch the first expansion um which i i i'm continually failing to pronounce properly zub marina uh, zub marina zub marina like sub marina but with ah, a z okay. I, um, I was keep thinking it was like Submarina for some reason and Submarina. There have been many times on the show where I've failed to pronounce things. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't talk English like the rest of the world. Well, if we're gonna, <laughs> if we're going to, you know, create imaginary words, like yeah, other people can't be blamed for. Uh, this is this is something that uh, one of our writers. Uh, there's this place in Sunless Sea called uh, Vendabite. Okay, and. Uh, uh, We'd watch people. We'd watch like people streaming the game, and they'd pronounce it Vendablite, Vendabrite, Vengalite, like everything <laughs> you can think of. And he'd sit there going, "Why won't anyone pronounce this place's name properly?" And I'm like, "You made it up. 
you made up a word, <laughs> you can't get angry that people can't pronounce it. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, strange names in Sun the Sea as well. But that is sort of adds to its charm. It's very it's, it's very solemn and somber at the same time, but kind of uh, witty with its naming uh, uh, that I sort of found a lot of. Um, but with the expansion then, so what is happening with the expansion? What, what are players going to be expecting to see and what is sort of going into the expansion? Okay, uh, so um, in the expansion, uh, what opens up is the opportunity for you to um, get your ship modified so that it can uh, dive beneath uh, the waves. And uh, as nasty and horrible uh, as the surface is, uh, like underneath is just worse in every way um like it's it's dark really dark um you've basically there's no light there except the light that you take with you um you've got limited oxygen supplies so it's like these little raids underneath the waves but um uh what you'll find is uh, some of the best uh hidden treasures of the undersea are down there uh particularly um Anyone who's played Sunless Sea for a certain amount of time will know uh, you die a lot and every, every captain uh, dies over and over again. Uh, so you're going to find a lot of shipwrecks down there that you can go and plunder. Um, okay, that sounds fun. But it's so dark that uh, that glimmering light in the distance, you may think it's a ship, but it might end up being like a giant eel or some horrible beastie or another a pirate ship so it's always about deciding whether or not you're prepared to take that risk okay there's also uh brand new um cities down there underwater civilizations that you can go and uh you know uh explore interact with so um yeah basically uh it's the you can dive pretty much anywhere else um, anywhere on the map and when you go down there there'll be something in- interesting for you to look at something to read uh you know loot to be gained uh beasties to be fought i'm such a i'm such an incredibly safe player when i play games that are sort of roguelike or where i could lose something or die very easily i sort of skirt around the edges towards things so i'm definitely someone who if i saw a light i would be like nope no, 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 no. I'm not going down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's plenty to... There's there's good stuff there, though. There's this sort of stuff that, especially if you're in a tight spot on the surface, you realise you're not going to make it, uh, you know, back to, back to London because you haven't got enough fuel. Sometimes yeah. it's worth diving underneath because you might just find a, you know, discarded fuel barrel. Uh, and that will be enough to actually save your captain. So there's a couple of like uh, Hail Mary moments uh, that can be had by taking that risk and uh, going uh, diving in the dark. So with the going underground, because uh, Sunless is obviously it's like top down view uh, of, of the city. How does this sort of map change and the layout change when you go under? Is it? How is the layout changing? Um, how, how do you sort of differentiate between the two? Uh, so it's the same uh, same perspective. Uh, I mean, the way we're kind of thinking about it is uh, almost like your uh, it's like a cross section. So um, you're just in the same place that you were 
but you know several whatever th uh, fathoms uh beneath the waves um so yeah you're still you're still top down um and uh the area that you're exploring conforms to the uh geography of the surface um but yeah it's a very if like that anyone who's familiar with uh, the way that navigating um the surface feels uh, will be right at home it's exactly the same as that it's just um darker excellent it sounds good and that's coming that's very very soon in one month tomorrow it would seem uh well speaking of now obviously one month from the uh, 11th october 11th i believe i think it's something like that yeah, yeah. um oh man my uh, uh <laughs> hannah's gonna kill me for not being able to tell you the exact release date <laughs> well we might talk a little bit more about that later but for now we're going to talk about games that you've chosen for the well your final games essentially for the virtual deserted place and um your list is a very uh it's a different list um than most people we've had a lot of super mario galaxies we've had a lot of the witcher 3 we had a lot of dark souls we had a lot of resident evil 4s recently um a lot of big titles, and yours is for sort of quite an eclectic list. Um, a lot of maybe strategy titles in there, uh, kind of RTS types, uh, and then maybe some some very well-known games, but maybe that have not appeared on the show before. So I'm very excited to jump into this. I'm sort of not very well-versed in some of these games, so you're going to have to really really show me why these games deserve to be on your list today and maybe um talk a little bit about why uh, maybe if they inspired you in any way when you were making sun the sea and that kind of thing it'd be great to hear yeah yeah absolutely one thing i realized while i was putting it together is i really like sequels apparently <laughs> I had not noticed that. Almost oh, yeah, there is a game I picked is the second <laughs> in the installment. <laughs> there is a lot of twos in this list, it would seem. <laughs> well, why don't we just jump straight into it then and then let's begin talking about your final game. So let's listen to some music from the first game and dive straight into it. Give me. A kiss to fill a dream on In my imagination Will thrive upon that kiss mm, Sweetheart, I ask no more than this A kiss to build a dream on mm. Give me a kiss before you leave me In my imagination Will feed my hungry heart mm, Leave me one thing before we part A kiss to build a dream on When I'm alone With my fancies I'll be with you Weaving so Liam, the first game on your list today is the Black Isle Studios and Interplay Entertainment developed game that was directed by Chris Avalone and Tim Kane, as well as designed by and produced Brian Fargo. Some of the big names in uh, old school PC RPGs. It released in September of 1998 for PC and Mac. It's Fallout 2, the role playing yeah. open world game. 
Liam, why is the first game you're taking with you today Fallout 2? Um, so this is a game that uh, I sort of feel I can play. I, I can't see a limit on the number of times I will want to play this game. Um, it's probably my favourite RPG of all time. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I like it so much is... Uh, how much the uh, narrative responds to um, like the build that you pick for your player. Um, yeah. And much of the role play in Fallout comes from uh, the sort of uh, the sort of person you are um, as much as the choices that you're making. Um, I've done uh, low intelligence runs. Uh, I don't know how much about the game I should uh, explain, but it's if you've ever played any of the new <laughs> Bethesda games, uh, it's they they kind of uh, brought across the the special um, kind of uh, stat based system. Yeah, the system the system where you put points in, you, uh, like intelligence, strength, uh, charm, and all the various different things that you could put stat po- points in to boost your character in various ways. Yeah, um, so. Uh, that has a huge impact uh, on not only uh, the uh, the like combat system in the game and the like uh, traversal and navigation systems, um, but uh, like conversation as well. And that's one of the yeah. things that I I kind of love about the game. Uh, so my kind of my typical like RPG build seems to be uh, a smart to- uh, talking, uh, charismatic person. Uh, because basically I'm a bit of a content hoover. I just always feel like I want to catch every little nugget of content. Uh, but in uh, Fallout 2, um, because I know that they're, the way that they've uh, written the story and the uh, like the conversation interactions, I know that they're going to be, they're going to allow for every type of build that there is. Like a really good example of this is uh, one of the stats is intelligence and they're pretty stingy with uh, how much you can allocate. So if you want to play a really tough character who's physically strong, very good at combat, it's usually going to come at the expense of something else. So I I played uh, a character once that uh, had uh, like one point of intelligence and um, most people, when you talk to them, basically don't understand you like they just kind of go um <laughs> sorry no I d- like you can't really engage in conversation until you meet this one character who uh like everyone sort of says yeah I, d- I don't really understand what he's saying and you two can have a perfectly eloquent conversation between you <laughs> like and it's his character if you go speak to him as an intelligent uh character you don't understand him either um and it's it's just full of like uh, uh, kind of diverse ways of uh, playing the game. You can do uh, completely non-lethal uh, playthroughs. You can do playthroughs where you kill everyone you meet. Um, you can uh, do playthrough. You can do a solo playthrough. You can do a playthrough where uh, you gather a party of people so that uh, you just become like this charismatic leader that never actually fights. Um, it's yeah I I I can't, I can't I don't know how many times I played Fallout Two now but I don't think I've got anywhere near to um, all the different variations on uh, 
play types. So that just seems like a game that I could probably sit down with and just keep playing over and over. Also, the story and the writing is really good. Really good. So what about then from the changes to the later Fallout games? How have you found, especially because they always use the special system as well, what makes Fallout 2 different, obviously apart from being a sort of isometric you know, RPG, compared to the Bethesda games that still use the special system and those conversations that are affected by what points you have, whether you're charismatic or intelligent uh, or strong and that kind of thing. What is the sort of glaring differences between what what makes Fallout 2 so special over maybe those games? Um, I think one of the things that makes it different is um, uh, Fallout 2 is is totally prepared to let the player um, uh, kind of engineer their own destruction. Uh, Like you can make a build that is just unusable and you can make choices that will make the game nigh impossible to uh, complete uh, which is obviously really frustrating um, and clearly comes from a uh, like a period of uh, <laughs> you know game design where there were there was there were fewer games and so the the result of someone getting frustrated was usually them going and then reloading <laughs> and going well I'm going to play this because it cost me you know 40 quid and uh, I've not got anything else to play. Whereas now, like if Fallout 4 uh, did that, well, this happened with me. Fallout 4 kind of uh, did something that I found unsatisfying uh, at some point during its um, quest. And I was, I, I was kind of sighed and I went, you know what? I've got five other games that I've been meaning to play. Uh, I've given this one, you know, a fair shot. I'm going to... Yeah. I'm going to hang it. I'm going to hang it up. Um, but uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I love Fallout 2 is that uh, because it's uh, it allows for such like um, uh, diverse styles of play, which means that you can really break the game in a way that you can't break Fallout 3 or Fallout 4. Um, which are already pretty broken in many ways, depending on how you <laughs> see Bethesda's sort of engine and their bugs that are in the game. But yeah, I know I know what you mean in terms of uh, like customizing certain ways to try different things, like speaking to characters who maybe not understand you, but maybe twisting something to see if you can do both at the same time and kind of just experimenting a lot. I do. I sort of see where you're going with that. Like you can kill, like. Uh, you can kill NPCs in. I mean, there's a big, there's a good example uh, of a difference. You can kill NPCs in, uh, like essential NPCs in Fallout Two, in a way that you can't in Fallout Three. Now, the reason you can't kill them in Fallout Three is for a really good reason. It would stop you being able to complete the game. That seems to be something that Black Isle didn't care that much about in <laughs> Fallout Two. They were like, if you want to, if you want to screw things up for yourself. Go ahead. You've doomed yourself. You've yeah. doomed yourself. <laughs> like for every for every character that I've actually completed Fallout Two with, there must be a thousand characters that are like just sat around New Reno, kind of like looking at some major que- like the corpse <laughs> of a major quest giver and going, "Well, I guess I'm stuck in the wasteland now." <laughs> like a weird butterfly effect. Yeah. <laughs> like going back in time and touching something and not being able to progress any further. For in Fallout Two, you can also kill the president of the United States, can't you? Oh the yeah, 
you, the leader of the enclave is like the president of the United States, isn't it? Yeah, well, you can... Uh, um, I mean, there's a couple of... Uh, you can kill the leader of the new California Republic as well. Um, oh, yeah, yes, yes, I you mean, can. Yeah, I mean, there's... Yeah, there's so many. You can kill the leader of the Church of Scientology, very um, <laughs> uh, shallowly masked as uh, uh, I can't remember what they're called. They're this cult. Um, but when you show up, I don't think there's anyone who's ever uh, seen that and gone. Mm, that's definitely they're definitely taking taking the piss out of Scientologists there. Oh, by the way, <laughs> sorry, am I allowed to swear? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, it's fine. Well, good. It's really good to ask after you've done it, I find. <laughs> okay, so I think we should probably move on to your next game now and talk about maybe the deserted island in which you are going to be trapped on. So let's listen to some music from the next game and let's dive straight into it. So before we talk about your next game then, Liam, we have to talk about where you're going to be stuck for the purpose of final games and where you're going to be playing these final eight games and killing the president in Fallout 2, of course. <laughs> so we allow you to choose where you want to be deserted. It has to be a virtual video game world. Um, but it's up to you to decide. There won't be any human NPC characters or characters you could potentially talk to who have sentient intelligence who might be able to keep you company. But monsters who want to kill you or any dangerous things will be there. So you have to think that thoroughly. Um, is there any way that immediately springs to mind from video games that you're like, ah, that, that wouldn't be so bad spending my days playing Fallout 2 in this world? Actually, uh, rather like the game that I've picked next, I would probably, uh, I would probably actually choose this as the island, or uh, it's the prequel to its uh, island. Actually, I'll take, I'll, I'll choose the prequel. Uh, I'd choose um, Riven, the island from. of Riven from yeah. the game Riven, <laughs> uh, which is um, it's completely. Uh, well, it seems completely abandoned. Uh, there are um, a couple of uh, uh, residents, but it's this um, uh, this sort of uh, tribal um, uh, sort of uh, society uh, in this um, this kind of like desert, like arid uh, sort of like desert environment with um, lots of. Uh, um, weird uh you know monoliths and uh carvings to uh gods and creatures that you've never 
um, you've never seen before. Yeah. Um, which uh, uh, I remember playing when I was uh, uh, just a young a young lad, and uh, I'd never seen anything like it before. And uh, the really weird and uh, intricate uh, lore surrounding the Mist series uh, yeah. is very evocative. It's basically uh, a world that someone's uh, thought up and written into existence, and so they write all of the all of the the physical laws as well. Water doesn't work in exactly the same way that you'd expect it to, and uh, uh, there's impossible uh, geography um, and technology that feels far in advance of the sort of place that it appears on the surface to be. Um, but mainly it just looks like it's got probably some nice places to, you know, sit and read in. And, like, <laughs> it looks quite lovely. Well, that is a perfect segue into the next game then, which is always good on a podcast. Um, the, ne- the next game you have chosen is from the Miss series. Uh, it's not as commercially successful as uh, Riven or the original Mist, um, but it's still held in some pretty high regard it was developed by uh presto studios and published by ubisoft it released in may of 2001 it's the graphic adventure puzzle game that is miss 3 exile liam please tell me why the second game that you're going to take with you to the prequel island of this game which is now becoming too meta um (laughs) um yeah it's going with you yeah so so yeah it's uh uh imagine uh, sort of diehard fans of the Miss series are probably screaming right now. Um, <laughs> why would you pick that one? Uh, but I've uh, I've always um, I've always loved this game, uh, and I find it to be uh, the uh, the most replayable. And I think part of the reason for that is um, the puzzle design is. Uh, uh, it's got really well crafted puzzle design. That's uh, a lot of it is about um, uh, responding to like visual uh, clues, uh, but they're not terribly memorable in a way that uh, I remember a lot of the puzzles by rote of like mist and ribbon. Um, but every time I sit down to play Mist Three, I basically have forgotten everything, and I get to go through the experience of like relearning that uh, puzzle. And um, I think uh, the narrative justification for these uh, much kind of uh, tighter and traditional, like, uh, you know, uh, physics puzzle um, uh, style uh, interactions is really yeah. clever. Um, in Miss 3, you're basically trapped on a, uh, like a tutorial world. The entire <laughs> The entire game is like set up as... Um, like this um, education world that was created for uh, um, oh I forget the was it Cirrus and Aknar the two brothers um, and so you go to like these different uh, worlds that are supposed to teach them about uh, how the, how the, like the rules of the worlds uh, work uh, so that's I think that's one of the reasons I love it I think the other reason is um this is uh one of the first games that i remember playing that had uh a lot of um uh interaction with you know an actual actor um, yeah Bra- Brad it was Riffs all it was in it. 
it was all blue screened with real actors um wasn't it yeah and like riven has that as well but uh um for some reason uh brad dorif sells this he's he basically plays this guy who's accidentally trapped on this island and has kind of uh um he's kind of gone you know uh slightly crazy uh and when you arrive uh he he basically sets these challenges for you and he's like this really threatening presence um and it's really funny like in the in the mist games a lot of the a lot of the atmosphere it's got like it's it's kind of like this sad sort of like you know mournful experience walking around these dead places and you some <laughs> and you sometimes kind of go oh i really wish there was someone here and when you meet people in mist games usually it's like this real moment of oh and now there's it's inhabited and i feel like less lonely but every time brad Dorif shows up you're like go away leave me alone i'm scared of you <laughs> um and he's uh, the guy who played grimmer Wormtongue in lord of the rings isn't he, he is and he, his name is savedro i i think see mist is like a series i glossed over very much when i was younger and i've never really ever got into it and i don't really know too much about it but i have played mystery exile with a friend when i was a little younger and this i sort of sat back and watched him play it but i do clearly remember this game came out around the same time as lord of the rings Mm. And I remember being like, that's Grimmel Worms Home. That guy is the the guy who was doing the king thing and Roheim thing when I was younger, like a silly little child. Um but yeah, he is like he's a weird, mysterious man, isn't he? His name's like Savedro, um and he sort of just appears at different times. I I don't remember too much about it. Yeah, it's um I mean, as I say, the great thing is uh neither do I. That's why I can replay this one over and over again. Like there was a period in which uh, the um, so the design of Riven basically means that uh, if you if you know the combination to this particular lock, you can end the game. Like a speed run of Riven probably takes about thirty seconds because uh, like there's this little portal at the very beginning of the game, and uh, if you know the right combination. You just enter in. And I could remember that. And so every time I played Riven, I was, at the back of my mind, I was kind of going, I have to remember to forget that combination. Otherwise, there is no game. Uh, whereas like Myst 3, um, uh, the there's a puzzle um, like in, I think, the second island that's all about uh, setting these balls rolling on tracks. It looks like a giant like roller coaster. And... Uh, I remember that so clearly and I know what you're supposed to do. It's all about weights and it's all about uh, balancing, but I don't remember the specifics. And so I can sit down and play that and provided I haven't played it in the last six months, it's like a a completely new experience for me, Um, which is just great because it basically means I've got, uh, you know, an eternal mist game and i love the mist games because i think it does uh environmental storytelling so well like as you walk around you just absorb so much about uh like the culture of the world and uh these people who lived there it does a lot of stuff with like journals like uh reading journals um and that's that's one of the more uh on the nose uh approaches to telling the story but the really nice thing is uh 
is just kind of like looking at the the shape of the uh you know the cutlery and crockery and it's just so well thought out like it feels like uh this imaginary place someone has thought about well how do they draw water here um how do they what uh, what would they use as a locking mechanism for a door um it's it's just great it just it really feels like being transported to another place and being able to you know explore freely which is um is something that i think only games can really do effectively yeah. i don't ever, I, like i've you don't feel like you get to know uh, the location uh of a place in a film uh or a novel or even a, a tv series and uh getting the opportunity to explore new places, places that are alien to me. Um, I absolutely love that. So what about games now? We're seeing this sort of resurgence of games very similar to Myst in terms of environmental storytelling, uh, like The Vanishing of Ethan Carter or um, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and most recently Firewatch and games like that. Ha- have you played games like that? Do you enjoy them or... Uh, the dreaded walking sim. Yes, yeah, so, well, I, I didn't want to use the term walking sim, but now it's out there. Yeah, walking sims, essentially. How how are you sort of... Do you like those games? Are you like, oh, this is kind of like what I was looking for with Mist, Or are you a bit like, eh, they sort of missed what... <laughs> they missed what Mist was going for. I think one of the key things is... Um, I think what Mist has... Uh, that some of these don't I, for a start i do like walking sim style games firewatch was excellent uh, everybody's gone to the rapture i found like genuinely really moving um uh but uh i think what mist has that uh, some of these miss is um uh, a, a really good narrative justification for you doing things uh, and it's not just the puzzles; it's the it's the setup. Uh, one of the one of the slightly odd things about a game like um, Dear Esther or Everybody's Gone to the Rapture is moment to moment, I often find myself going, "Well, why am I going into this building, or why am I walking around here?" And that's never a question that I've had in a in a missed game. You're always trapped and trying to find your way off the island and the puzzles are uh like a justification for you exploring like you're looking for the answer to a a puzzle you're looking for a key and um actually something that uh, that's something that amnesia does really well like okay. it doesn't just send you into uh, a terrifying labyrinth and go now run around and scare yourself <laughs> it it kind of like it goes okay uh, we're going to put something for you to uh, reach uh, off in this far corner and you're going to have to go there and back again and then we're going to scare the crap out of you <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i think um i think that these uh these um let's call them uh low interaction games uh like i think they work really really well when uh if all you're doing is just walking around is uh justified and like firewatch does that brilliantly like firewatch is a game about a person whose sole job it is is to uh walk through this national park and 
uh, just check up on things. So you, I, I've, ne- you never question why you're ambling in uh, in that game. Uh, and I think it's really important that uh, the player never has a moment in a game where they kind of go, "What was I doing again?" Because as soon as you start thinking that, the illusion starts to fall apart. It's it's weird because I get what you mean, and it's sort of maybe what doesn't draw me to games like this is that doesn't feel like a sense of meaning. Um, you can have all the sort of philosophical uh, philosophical thoughts behind maybe such a game where you're the environmental storytelling is meant to lead you on a little, um, but without that sort of maybe goal to aim for, it, it does. Uh, uh, Although to me personally seem a little redundant and maybe a bit of a waste. I haven't played Firewatch. I sort of, I, I knew, well, I, I meant to play it, but I haven't, I haven't got round to doing so yet. Um, but sort of the one thing that always I liked about Firewatch is it didn't go for like graphical fil- fil- fidelity. Maybe like games like Vanishing of Car, which rely solely on the world being realistic to draw you in and explore its world without maybe giving you reason. I like that Firewatch was a bit more cartoony and stylistic to be like, okay, so this obviously isn't a real world, but it's trying to tell you something and trying to point you to interesting things that might appear on the map. And that does seem a little more appealing than uh, games like Everybody's Gone to the Rapture or it's- Vanishing of the Car. It's funny, actually. Um, I think uh, the thing that um, uh, I think both The Vanishing of Ethan Carter and Firewatch have in common in terms of their art direction is the game works when it makes you believe that it's uh, like a coherent place. Like it's a place that um, you see something and you go, that belongs here. Now, uh, The Vanishing of Ethan Carter does like has... Uh, uh, a really useful um, uh, tool at its uh, disposal because it's going for like photorealism. Um, yeah. You kind of you've you've got like this catalogue of things that uh, you know would belong in this world. Like you know what a pine tree looks like. You know what a river looks like. And um, so when you see it, it's always like reinforcing that as long as it looks photorealistic. Yeah. Um, Firewatch has to. Uh, it has to establish its uh, uh, the the look of the world uh, from scratch, um, but uh, you know they've got an amazing uh, art team over there, and every time you see something in Firewatch, you just you just go, yeah, that is that is the that is the boulder that belongs in this world. Uh, that is the way a turtle should look, and so it all yeah. feels like real and satisfying. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, well, it's, uh, it seems plausible. Yes, Maybe, like definitely, like plausible. Like, oh yeah, that like this fits in this world. This looks like what a turtle would look like in this world. Sort of a little bit chubby, uh, kind of a little loss of detail maybe, um, and some like nice shading colors and that kind of thing. Everything fits in a certain way. Um, yeah. But but upon that, it's not to our eyes. Um, like recognizable in a way that it's like oh that, that that's an interesting way to design a 
tree or something, it's like, oh, that's really interesting. I'll go have a look at that. I'll go explore over there, see what that looks like or something. Um, whereas when you have a game like The Vanishing of Ethan Carter and it does look visually spectacular, you're, well, you're like, oh, I'm kind of just walking around a field like the field that's next to my house. <laughs> um, so maybe the intrigue is lost a little bit, but then that's when that game's story has to then provide you with a way of pushing through a little bit, which sometimes can be a bit difficult because it's it is as you say low interaction mm-hmm. um, yeah well i think we should change pace a little bit now um and ramp up the interaction and go to a game that requires you to constantly react and then rewind and then react then rewind and then react and then finally pass the stage after multiple rewinds um so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it So the next game that you're going to be taking with you, Liam, is a game that's pretty much been released for almost every platform under the sun uh, at this point. It was released for the PlayStation 2 originally in November of 2003. Then the Xbox, the GameCube, uh, the Game Boy Advance, Windows, Mobile, PlayStation 3, PC, just pretty much everything. It's been released over everything. But it's an excellent game, and it's the Prince of Persia Sands of Time game developed by Ubisoft and directed by Patrice Desilly, who then went on to design Assassin's Creed. Liam, please tell me why Prince of Persia, which I'm really excited to see on this list. It's not a game I ever thought would really appear on Final Games. It's a, It reviewed really well and, did, uh, and has like that core fan base, but I didn't think it was maybe like rest of your life good, maybe? Yeah. I know this is um, uh, one thing I realized when I was putting this list together is there's quite a few. Uh, well, actually, um, I guess you'd say the first, like Fallout, Mist, and Prince of Persia. They're quite narrative, and it doesn't necessarily uh, um, uh, sustain over like replays. Uh, but uh, Prince of Persia, I reckon I've probably re- I've probably played about fifteen times, um, and. I can basically get it done now in about six hours because I know it so well. Um, and uh, it's... I I really love the level design. Um, I feel like the plot is, uh, um, you know, inoffensive. Like, like it's well... <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not... It's not winning any... Um, it's not going to win any awards, but it's uh, it's really kind of like it's it's a really like nice, uh, you know, like action movie style uh, plot. Like it's you know, it's, the, it's a it's a it's a fleshed out Mario story essentially. Ex- yeah, um, which is just something that I can sit there and uh, enjoy. It's it's it gives me enough reason to uh, move on to the next level. Um, 
The music is wicked. I love the music in this game. And uh, it feels really, really good to play. It's kind of interesting that uh, uh, I'm a big, I am a fan of the Assassin's Creed uh, series, but uh, the way that uh, the game feel differs in this to that is uh, really quite um, interesting. Uh, the prince uh, in this game moves uh, so uh, so fluidly and so quickly, um, and uh, the uh, the commands are uh, it, it's 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 more like a, a Mario style like a precision platformer. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. I kind of when you were thinking about it then, the, the, I've sort of had this conversation with before about um, with someone about like game feel and game control and how you can sort of differentiate like action games. Have you ever played Super Meat Boy? Yes, the indie game Prince of Persia to me seems like and and Super Meat Boy are kind of the same thing. Whereas instead of dying and restarting instantly you you know you rewind time they're both they're, they're like good examples of when a controller just feels like an extension of your hands and they feel so incredibly fluid yeah it's i mean it does some uh, i love the rewind mechanic i feel like that's that's one of those things that uh, uh the the idea for that is just so clever like when they they must have when they started working on that just gone we've landed on something really interesting here because it um it sort of circumvents one of the main frustrations that you can have with a platformer which is um you execute perfectly you execute perfectly uh, you're on a really good run you're feeling good you're feeling badass and then something goes wrong for you you misjudge something and you fall and you then have to go back and execute perfectly on everything that led up to your failure and this instead, like uh, a lot of uh, games get around that with uh, checkpointing, like really kind of uh, frequent checkpointing. Yeah. Uh, but that can often feel like it um, it undermines your uh, your feeling of uh, mastery because it's it's just setting you back at a certain point. This lets you re- rewind, have another crack at something and the sense that you have is that the prince uh, under your control still manages manage to do that flawless um, uh, set of moves. Because that's the really interesting thing about the rewind mechanic. If you took out all the moments of rewind and watched a playthrough of Prince of Persia, it's someone doing everything perfect every time. Like he's a perfect... Um, he's a, he's a, like a flawless, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, hero. Yeah. Um, and as like as and so it's kind of you've got this platforming that's enhanced by this rewind mechanic that they then uh, really cleverly uh, go well. Uh, how can we make this bleed into other aspects of the game? So you've got the idea of like freezing enemies in time as a way of like crowd control during these uh, um, these combat um, encounters uh, and uh, saving and loading. Uh, is it's all narrated by the uh, the prince who becomes this sort of like unreliable narrator. So when you die, he's like, no, 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 that's that's not how it happened. It's, oh yeah, I'm misremembering I, yeah. that. Um, <laughs> that's not what happened. It's like yeah. like a record scratch. It's like no wait yeah. a second, goes all the way back, and it's like 
here's where it started. <laughs> it's weird because, as you said, like uh, games sort of get around, you know, the player dying by checkpointing, and checkpointing seems like a really uh, intrusive way of progressing you forward. Like, oh, don't, don't, don't worry, we'll we'll just try again. Oh. Whereas, obviously, the rewind mechanic is you failed, but you can rewind it. But it is a game mechanic, and it's yeah. something that is a tool in your arsenal. So, if you are a character who can uh perfectly execute perfectly execute perfectly and then oh fail no wait it's okay because i can rewind it's part of my it's part of my arsenal essentially so he's he's failing but also perfectly executing one of his abilities yes which is to rewind time so it does it continually keeps it that motion it doesn't intrude it does it still asks you to think uh, okay, wait, no, I need to, I need to execute this rewind to carry on going or something like that. So it is this non-intrusive way of being like, no, you're awesome as the player. You're great. You can do all these awesome things and you can just keep going without maybe babying you or breaking the immersion a little bit. Yeah. It also has this, um, uh, this really nice effect of, uh, almost like dampening the feeling of failure. We need failure in games because that's what makes the successes feel good. But um, it does, it, it does, it's like a knock to the, to the player. And like, sometimes that's a good thing because it means you can build them back up, but you do need to control uh, how, you know, how negative that uh, feeling is. Um, like XCOM's a really good, um, like interesting example of like when it kills people, like it kills your team. Like there, I think everyone who's played XCOM will have a moment where they felt like it was a good kill that they felt okay about, like still devastated. And when it was a bad kill, like where that was unfair and they were properly angry. And like one yeah. of the things that um, I think Prince of Persia does is it says when you fail a jump, that's okay. You did fail, but you are now going to that your job now is to rewind use this mechanic and you will have that will be a point of success for you so like you have these it's like rescuing out rescuing you out of a trough you're like uh, snatching uh, victory from the jaws of defeat and it's this really <laughs> satisfying like yes moment uh, that um you don't get in a lot of uh, other platformers like other platformers it's just like uh i died <laughs> yeah it's it's funny actually. I remember uh, which version of the game did you play? Was it the PlayStation Two version or? I have played the PlayStation version, the PC version. Uh, I think I played the Xbox version as well. Because I, I became I, I became for a time obsessed with when I was younger. Obviously, like everyone, I didn't really have too many games, and I had to replay the ones I had. And I I remember I was extremely proud of my GameCube and my growing game GameCube collection of about ten games, and one of them was prince of persia and apart from you know mario mario kart smash brothers and that kind of thing it was the maybe the only third party game i had mm -hmm. that was different to first party nintendo stuff and i got obsessed with prince of persia and i remember liking it so much that and this was 2003 so it was still the sort of dawn of maybe smartphones moving into the phones we have now it was still like old nokias with color screens and um, i remember my dad had a work phone and uh he, he he it had the like very early nokia game store and there was a prince of persia game on there and i i like downloaded it and my dad was like three weeks later he was like did you buy a game for 15 pounds on my mobile phone <laughs> it was this crap really bad port of like prince of persia for the nokia that was barely playable and it was like 15 pounds at the time 
Ah, good I've times. I've got to say, uh, <laughs> like Ubisoft have form of uh, not very good uh, mobile uh, knockoffs of their um, uh, their third person uh, action titles, like. I, I, I don't I can't see a scenario in which I'm going to hear the announcement of one of those anytime soon and go, oh, yeah, I imagine that will be very faithful to the original experience and definitely worth the money. It's weird because I can't remember, but th- there was a Game Boy Advance port as well. I can't remember if that received good, good reviews at all. I, I'm not sure that was a, was good either. I can't remember. No, I think it was much. maybe middle middle of the road. Yeah, I mean, I remember the film. Uh, but um, I, <laughs> I remember seeing the film. I don't remember anything about the film. Uh, that was um, the that was Jake, the Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. yeah, I think to I think from what I remember of that, um, that was the only video game film I think I've ever liked, and that was only because it was it was bearable. It was yeah. bearable. I've since I've since seen Warcraft, and I recently saw Kingsglaive for Final Fantasy, mm-hmm. and I actually really really enjoyed Warcraft. But Kingsglaive was then again like, oh yeah, everyone is really bad at making video game movies for some reason. But I remember Prince of Persia being like, okay, this isn't very, very good. But at least they sort of nailed the Prince of Persia vibe. Yeah, they didn't do like the, so full disclosure, I love the Super Mario Brothers movie. but Oh God, think, this, this ends think, here. This podcast I, ends here. <laughs> I don't think you can drift any further from the source material than they did. Like they, they, took, they took names... And then that was it. They literally just went, they're, well, they're probably plumbers. Like, they took the aspect of the character that I think is least well-developed in the games. <laughs> I, I've never felt that Mario was the archetypal <laughs> plumber. <laughs> it's now, weird, actually, because I, I, speaking of, I actually last night watched a review of the Super Mario Bros. film by um, the Angry Video Game Nerd. Do you know, do you know yeah, the Angry yeah, Video yeah. Game Nerd? So he obviously does movie reviews as well because he's a big movie fan. And he'd realized he'd never really reviewed the Super Mario Bros. film and he'd watched it when he was younger. And what, the, watching him sort of pick apart that and and when you think back to a time when this was like 1993, video game, there was no internet, there was no, there was no story in Mario and the liberties they had to take with when you think, what is Mario? It's just a plumber who goes sideways, does no plumbing and jumps on Goomba's heads. Like... How you turn that into a film, like, no wonder that became the the shit show that it was. No oh, offense yeah. that you like it. <laughs> oh, no. Look, I know it's absolute garbage, but I still... <laughs> a, a really funny anecdote I heard about um, Bob Hoskins, because it's crazy that Bob Hoskins plays Mario. Like, some, like he's a proper actor. What's he doing? Um, and he signed do, do up... You, do, you, do you know who was going to be... Who was going to be Mario if Bob Hoskins wasn't Mario? No. It was Tom Hanks. Amazing. Amazing. But Bob Hoskins, off the back of Roger Rabbit, was a bigger star at the time than Tom Hanks. Yeah, wow. Well, like, apparently (laughs) Bob Hoskins had no idea it was a video game. And the first, like, he... So he signed on to the film. And then apparently his... uh, uh, He was... like he he walked into his living room and his son was like playing this game on the computer and he was like, uh, what's this you're playing? And his uh, son goes, oh, it's uh, Super Mario. And apparently Bob Hoskins, that was the first he found out that it was like <laughs> a video game. He was like, that's who I'm going to be playing. <laughs> 
oh, it's weird. Video game movies are weird, and it's... I don't know why it's not worked yet. Like, the Resident Evil films, you know, not very good. The Prince of Persia film has at least got the Prince of Persia vibe. Like, they didn't take too many liberties. They they made the prince look like the prince and yeah. sort of that kind of thing. The Warcraft movie I recently watched, and I know it got really bad reviews and stuff, but I felt that was easily the most true to the source so far. And a really, a pretty decent, decent film overall, but... Kingsglaive the other day in hype for Final Fantasy XV just wasn't very good, and I don't know why. Maybe maybe they'll make a Sunless Sea film one day, and oh, I uh, you love can. That. It would be very. You can be the. <laughs> it'd be very short. <laughs> Sailor sets off to sea, dies. What 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 film do you reckon it could be? Like when I think maybe what is that? Extra League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That that's the sort of vibe I would get from it. Or, or Ten Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, or something. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think it would be uh, like an ensemble uh, sort of uh, cast thing. Uh, I'd like to. I'd hope it would be better than League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Maybe I'll pitch it <laughs> as. Uh, um, I don't know. I'm trying to th- like a, maybe a Magnificent Seven style um, thing, but nautical. <laughs> Well, I think it's about time we moved on from movie talk to get back on the video game talk. And we're sort of going into something I'm very excited to talk about because I've recently got back into the hobby that this game is based on. Um, So I'm very excited to talk about this next game. Let's listen to some music and let's talk about it. next game that you're going to be taking with you um liam is when we spoke through email you were like oh can i take board games or card games and i said as long as there's a video game version of it you can take it um obviously you're by yourself so you, you wouldn't particularly want a board game i don't think <laughs> unless you're yeah. playing with the ai but the ai is never that smart but you did choose a card game and you've chosen a a card game based on my favorite card game, Magic the Gathering, of course. Uh, and you've chosen Magic the Gathering, Jewels of the Planeswalker 2014, uh, one of the games developed by Stainless Games, who have since developed an annual series. I think it's up to Magic... Tw- the, the, it's a new one now. I forget what it's called, like Magic... Uh, the Magic Jewels. They've um, Yeah, Magic uh, Jewels, yeah. In the... Um, uh... In the fine tradition of uh, all uh, game series that reach a certain amount, they just gave up on numbers. They were just gave yeah. up on numbers, gave up on names, <laughs> and they'll just call it the same thing now over and over. Yeah, so the one you have chosen, though, is 
uh, Magic the Gathering twenty or Magic twenty fourteen as it's known. Um, so why are you taking Magic twenty fourteen with you and maybe not one of the more recent editions in the in the series? And uh, tell me a little bit about you and Magic. Um, so I've been uh, a Magic the Gathering uh, player for a fair long time. Uh, like I've I've lapsed and then like come back to it uh, periodically, um, but uh, it's it's one of the it's one of the finest um, uh, strategy games that I think you can play, um, and the uh, uh, the artwork's great. Um, the kind of like the flavor and the lore uh, isn't too in your face, um, but is uh, like exceptionally cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I've always I've always loved it, um, and. This particular uh, uh, version of it, the reason I'm picking 2014, is for um, a specific deck that it has in it, um, which is uh, which is uh, it's a, it's an Eldrazi deck, um, and the Eldrazi. Oh no, the dreaded Eldrazi. Yeah, so the Eldrazi. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but basically, um, there's this world in the Magic universe that um everyone goes to it's like this adventure world um and it's kind of like it's like an indiana jones world and uh what happens is everyone's kind of like having a good time uh exploring this uh you know jungle and the plains of this world and then they unlock this gate and behind the gate are these lovecraftian style uh nightmarish monsters that <laughs> don't want they they're, they're not good they're not bad they just destroy like they don't have they don't even have a concept of what malice is they're like these they're like the titans from uh um you know kind of uh, greek mythology um like they're just huge and betentacled and uh incredibly powerful and they represent this style of um uh magic the gathering playing which uh uh, they refer to as battle cruiser magic because uh, magic is normally about uh, playing creatures that don't cost very much because you've got like resource that you have to spend and it's about trading off creatures and it's and like whittling down your player's health and battle cruiser magic is where uh, you don't do so much of that it's just about biding your time until you can all release these giant creatures yeah. uh, and then they uh, duke it out between them and uh the i really like that uh that rhythm and the patience it requires and the feeling of like slowly building towards a plan um and uh they're the sorts of uh decks that i i really like um so uh that's why i specifically like uh 2014 the only thing that could make it perfect for me is if it had a mill deck in it as well and mill decks where you basically make your opponent draw all their cards and then lose the game that way. Because uh, I sort of like um, uh, finding, uh, you know, alternative strategies to winning uh, over just, you know, reducing their health to zero. Uh, so ha- having, um, having a little play around with your opponent in strange ways with some weird and intriguing uh, sort of effects is always a lot more fun than just outright laying a 12 12 creature down and just wiping them off the 
face of the Zendikar. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, um, and one of the things, the reason that I like the, uh, um, and again, this is one of the things that Magic does really well is um, their mechanics and the flavor that they kind of like evoke with them are really well married. So um, when an Eldrazi attacks, it doesn't just attack because it's like this being of uh, like from the void and it just like it's it's just um, an utter destroyer. Like even its presence in a place starts to break down the fabric of reality. So when it attacks a player, the player has to like sacrifice a certain number of cards. Like it's just like the land around them is disappearing and like cards <laughs> that were on your... And so like killing people is the, the less fun part of like the Eldrazi like... Um, strategy the really fun thing is basically looking at like the you know the defense that they built up the world they've the, your opponents created just disappearing like evaporating around them and then just being like well now there's nothing but this giant titan and it's going to hit you now in the face really hard <laughs> so are you up to date with the most recent um set of the actual physical card game then do you keep up to date with it um, I've uh, I've just missed out on um, uh, the uh, latest uh, block, um, which is which, which is which, the uh, Eldritch Moon. Block. Yeah, which is yeah. Uh, kind of a uh, a sequel to the um, the Innistrad. Um, yes, uh, block yeah, from like many years ago. Yeah. Um, so in the most recent Eldritch Moon, there is a lot of uh, Eldrazi based stuff. Obviously, the big big thing is Emrakul which is one of the Eldrazi gods. Emrakul, um, the Aeon's Torn. It's yeah. so overdone. <laughs> I friggin' love all of that stuff. So Emrakul, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically like a giant purple jellyfish that's maybe the size of Godzilla. Um, and the the Emrakul card that you can get in this new set um, basically allows you to take over your player's turn and make the turn for them. And then you're able to sort of twist their turn and use all their cards in their hands and and just really fuck them up in a true Eldrazi kind of way. Truly just destroying them by just <laughs> doing everything for them. And there's all there's a whole set of cards in, in the uh Eldritch Moon block that allow you to transform normal creatures into disgusting Eldrazi infected versions. So they're they're kind of like a weird moss that just infects everything. Yeah. And uh just, it's, just te- tears everything apart. <laughs> it's really like I've um, I've have been following that set, even though I've not played any yet. But um, I really like the um, uh, uh, because the Innistrad block is basically like the um, Universal monster movies monsters. It's all like werewolves and vampires, vampires. Yeah. and it's it's got this really nice kind of um, you know. Uh, like gothic uh, thing going on yeah um, absolutely and uh, I actually I really like the bleed through from that into uh, this kind of uh, cosmic horror uh, that the um, Eldrazi kind of uh, uh, represent uh, it's a really interesting um, uh, kind of like uh, uh, like uh, like um, I don't know layering of different genre tropes is one that i think works uh really well uh i think i've probably already mentioned his name here but um, i'm a big hp lovecraft fan and that's something that he i feel like when he was like being particularly successful it felt like he was like playing in that sort of like region like the whole idea of 
well, here is a thing that is acknowledged as being uh, monstrous and horrible, but actually this is not the whole thing. It's actually worse than you realise. Um, and, uh, yeah, another game in the list that I've got, uh, I've realised, <laughs> has a lot of that in it as well. <laughs> well, we might as well move into that game then, because yeah. um, it is the next game on your list. And uh, Gothic horror might um, be able to make anybody jump and be like, oh, I know what that is. And we'll be able to confirm it now by listening to some music and diving into what the next game is, which is one of the best games I've played in recent years. So jumping back into that gothic horror feel and sort of uh, disgusting Victorian era, blood gushing, infected weird creatures, we are in fact now going to talk about From Software's excellent PS4 exclusive directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki and just wonderful follow-up to Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Liam. I can have many reasons as to why this game would be on your list, but for you, why is Bloodborne going with you to the island in the mist? Um, yeah, uh, this is... Uh, I, I just think this is uh, one of the... Definitely up there as one of the best games I've ever played. Um, and um, I really like the Dark Souls uh, franchise. Or the uh, the Soulsborne franchises, I've heard it referred to, um, <laughs> but uh, but th- th- I think this is the one I would uh, I would pick uh, because um, it's it's in many ways the tightest game I think they've uh, put together, um, and that makes it um, uh, more satisfying to replay. Uh, I've there was a period um, when it first came out, which was just after we released Sunless Sea where uh, it was the only game I played for a couple of months because I, I just, I finished it, started it up again, played it through, finished it, started it. Like I just, I played it through like five or so times just because I, I liked the experience of playing it so much. Uh, what's our spoiler policy on this? I think usually I'm okay. Bloodborne has been out for almost two years now. Uh-huh. It's, getting on, it's getting on for two years, so let's try to keep it not so spoilery. Not okay. so spoilery. It's, let's, I need to create a rule, I think, maybe this generation. So moving into PS4 or Xbox One generation, I think we, we'll stay safe from those, but games previously will uh, spoil to hell. But with Bloodborne, it's a very special game, and... I think the story doesn't really kick in until maybe halfway through the game anyway. So this is the this is the thing. Um 
the uh, one of the things I'll never be able to recreate my first playthrough um, because, um, as with uh, all of the FromSoft uh, games, uh, the story is just sort of like very slowly revealed to you um, as you play. Uh, yeah, it's not great absolutely. big chunks of exposition. Um, and uh, the game that Bloodborne starts off as is not the game it ends up being. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think I've, I don't think I've necessarily uh, played a game that tried to do the same thing Bloodborne does. Like uh, I've never seen it done as well uh, as it did. I was playing with, um, I was hot seating uh, with a, a friend, and we were just kept on speculating about what different things meant, and then like we'd uh, we'd then see something and we go, but actually that's contradictory to this thing that we. Uh, uh, like that we um we saw the other time in this theory we had, um, and that was just amazing. So in many ways, like a game that uh, <laughs> I'm gonna play for the rest of my life, it would seem like this is not a good choice. But um, <laughs> even when you, uh, I still like the story it tells, even when I know what's coming, and uh, it's just the best feeling. Um. Uh, like action game I've ever I've ever played I think like, that's the point I think story wise once you've played it it's very interesting and it, as you said it it doesn't end the way it starts it starts very much like oh it's a curse there's a curse affecting the town people are turning to it actually it's way more than that and there's a lot more going on and you don't really there is a defining point when there is one boss in the game that once you defeat that boss then you're like, oh, wait, actually, there is a lot more happening in the story than I initially thought. But once you sort of experience all that and you finish the game, you're very much like, now, now I'm just going to tear some bosses apart and just have some fun now because the combat is just so bloody good, so fucking good at times. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, uh, one playthrough I... Um, uh, I, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's just a name, but there's um, someone called Eileen the Crow who's like an NPC, uh, yeah. and uh, she has a set of weapons that um, uh, you do get access to later on in the game, but she's way too hard to um, kill when you first encounter her, unless you cheat, which I did. I basically got her trapped in a corner and kept on throwing firebombs at her, or the equivalent of firebombs. I managed to get these uh, weapons... And um, the like the way that they uh, the way the weapons work in the game uh, mean that uh, as soon as you get a new uh, a new weapon, your approach to the the entire game changes. And um, it was really interesting starting with those weapons from that early on in the game uh, because it just meant I had an entirely different experience. Uh, and there are still there are still weapons that I've uh, not taken through to uh, the end game yet. That, yeah. Like, I'm not saying that I can play this maybe an infinite number of times, but uh, I can't remember how many weapons there are now. They added tons in the DLC, but I could certainly play uh, as many um, as, as many times as there are weapons. Rather interestingly, though, it does have a new game plus uh, mode you can take it up to new game plus seven with like increasing difficulty never done that I, that's never interested me <laughs> it, 
it's weird because it does it just keep getting infinitely harder and more difficult but it is a long game it is a very long game uh longer than a lot of people think and it does just keep going um especially if you don't know what's happening um so if you were going to play through the different variations of weapons although there is not anywhere near as much as there is in the dark souls games that would still take you a very good long while yeah very long time so I think it, I think it's a safe bet for the uh, island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, happy with uh, my choice. I I want to go play it. I'm looking at screenshots of it now, and I just want to go play it. I have so, that game impressed me so. I'm un, uh, unlike you. I enjoy H.P. Lovecraft stories, but I I'm not particularly fond of like Gothic era settings too much. Mm-hmm. Um, they've never really appealed to me greatly uh, compared to maybe like sci-fi or fantasy, maybe. Um, but Bloodborne's world is so expertly designed and crafted and just so intriguing and uh, so special. <laughs> just It impressed me how much I really started to enjoy that kind of setting, that Gothic era type st- uh, Victorian setting. It's one of those things as well that um, I think my... like. Uh, my interest in the world keeps on getting, uh, you know, stirred back up again because um, they're not telling a story in a traditional way. And a lot of what uh, um, uh, I'm kind of getting from the world is actually coming from external sources to the game. Like there's this really um, uh, inquisitive community that's like digging up bits of lore. Um, There's this... um, uh this youtube uh this youtuber called um this channel is called uh, jerk sans frontiers and yeah. uh he he's got this series called bloodborne up close which is just him using uh like this zoom function that's in the game to look at uh like the statues in the game and the details on costumes to kind of sh- uh draw like links between like the various factions in the game like really because the game's so uh uh carefully like crafted um they can they can not exp- they can they can just uh rather than just saying something explicitly they can just leave the connections there for people to find and like that just means that every time i think i've uh understood uh like everything that there is to know about bloodborne someone finds something new and everyone goes, ah! <laughs> and like that was one of the moments when the DLC came out and it answered some stuff that we hadn't understood before. Like it was this amazing moment of everyone kind of going, we got it all wrong. Like uh, there's, there's more to this than we realized. Oh, it's brilliant. So good. <laughs> Such an excellent game and a game I can truly see myself playing for a very long time as well. So very good choice to take with you. So let's move into the next game, which is a game you, you could also play for an infinite amount of times due to uh, the type of game that it is. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it.
the next game that you're going to be taking with you, uh, Liam, um, is a game that I watched a movie about not that long ago that I talk about, uh, Warcraft. So this game is a game that's not appeared before. It's not World of Warcraft. It's in the same realm and the same world, developed by Blizzard Entertainment and written by the wonderful Chris Metzen, who has gone on to almost write and design everything that Blizzard has done in recent times. Uh, it's released originally for the PC in December of 1995, and it also saw releases on the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation as well a few years later. Oh, of they all were things. rough. They were rough, and uh, the Saturn, a Saturn version of this game, I can't even imagine. Um, it is Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness. Now, Liam, please tell me why Warcraft 2 out of the series is the one you're taking with you. Um, I think this might just be, um, I don't know, uh, there might be an, an element of nostalgia here. Like Warcraft 2 is the first Warcraft game I remember playing a lot of. Um, but uh, but I think some of it is just, um, it feels like it's uh, like, I, I, I don't know, like the tone and the art and everything that it does. It just feels like it all executes like so perfectly um like the it's got this really like interesting like cartoony style to it which um is something that feels like it would be in like conflict with um uh like the like the narrative that it's trying to tell like these kind of like invading armies and it's all quite um it's all quite like bloody and uh, uh it's got a kind of like warhammer uh, feel to it, though I'm sure they'd be livid if uh, they heard me comparing it to Warhammer. I'm sure that's the last thing they want. <laughs> um, but actually, um, I think uh, I think there's always been this element of playfulness to um, like the Warcraft uh, franchise that sort of says um, <clears throat> we can we can make it this bold, colourful world. That doesn't mean that doesn't. Uh, mean that we it can't take itself seriously um i absolutely also- agree i absolutely agree actually just as an aside i've recently been playing through legion the new world of warcraft expansion and it i'm playing through a zone which is incredibly colorful it's beautiful forests and everything but the storyline is really dark and there's all these really like popular characters being infected and being killed or um it, it's crazy it, yeah. it, it does keep this this very serious line, although in this very bright and colorful world. Mm-hmm. Um, like back when I uh, I played it, um, like the real time, the other real time strategies around at the time were um, pretty somber affairs. Like uh, I'm probably getting uh, the timing wrong a bit, but like you had Command and Conquer, which uh, like. Um, even Red Alert, which is sort of like the fun version of Command and Conquer that there was, um, is still very like um, uh, like functional and uh, uh, sort of like stark. And this, by comparison, like uh, you had like these uh, uh, tiny little um, guys that had like uh, discernible features, like you could see like little eyes on like the the sprites and. Uh, they had these like funny little voices, like it's like who is that? All of the oaks, like that. Uh, uh, like it was, um, 
and like all the buildings like you'd be in if you like there was a level with snow there would be snow all over like um the buildings it was just like a really nice uh level of detail that they were putting in there um i think one of the things that would make it uh replayable for me even though the campaign is great i really enjoy playing the campaign but um it was the first game that i the first real-time strategy game i played that had a really um good uh, map editor with it and i made a bunch of maps um uh and it was like they're probably my earliest um like experiments with game design and i'd go on to do more of that with warcraft 3 because i was uh sort of involved in the modern community there uh yeah. for a while i was working on a total conversion of warcraft 1 into warcraft 3 um but uh, I think it all got started with uh, Warcraft 2 uh, and its map editor. And uh, I think if I was on a desert island, I wouldn't necessarily want to uh, have something as heavyweight as the Warcraft 3 uh, map editor. But it might be nice to put together some uh, simple RTS levels for Warcraft 2. Yeah, exactly. Like you, I've, I'm finding more and more that we're seeing a lot more games um, that have editors in some way i think especially with the last generation with games like halo forge and uh stuff like that there was this resurgence in like content created by users Mm -hmm. and then shared especially with you know being able to freely share things online and we're sort of seeing that now we've seen recently like super mario maker uh and stuff like that um i feel like one of the choices when people come on the show like a very good choice is to create is to take a, a game that is already good and mechanically good but has the ability to last even longer by your own input yeah as well so games like you know warcraft uh, map editors starcraft map editors uh, super mario maker uh, the halo forge and stuff like that are all really good ideas to be able to keep going in the island and and also to keep your sort of creativity uh to have an output essentially the way of making your brain not go crazy a little bit yeah. by being able to be creative and at the same time also be able to frequently enjoy fresh and newer things yeah no absolutely yeah it's um cuz uh, even the most uh, well crafted campaign uh like you can't just play it on cycle um and uh I think that um, you provide tools for people and they can extend the longevity of a game, just uh, give people more stuff to play. And also really, if, if the tools are good enough, you can start to subvert uh, the very core of the the game. So like, uh, um, like the Warcraft 3 um, map editor being flexible enough to create um, uh, like now what's an entire... Uh, genre like uh defense of the ancients spawning the moba genre which was like built in an engine designed for real-time strategy <laughs> like that's incredible and tower yeah, exactly. defense tower defense came from warcraft 3 and probably yeah. this is probably all entirely wrong and someone's gonna go you idiot it all came from starcraft or something you've not even heard of uh but um but yeah uh it's it's kind of it's amazing to see uh the way people will uh subvert what you think of as being like core to that game as soon as you give them the tools to do so 
Exactly. It's like, you know, MOBA is obviously one of the biggest genres in the world. People, millions of people play League of Legends and Dota and that kind of thing. And it, it came from someone's idea of like, oh, how do I sort of make Warcraft a little more fresh? Or, yeah. Or a little more interesting to me. And now, look. <laughs> yeah. But it, would, it would be a shame if uh, on the island you would create one heck of a brand new gameplay mode and and no one would be able to play it (laughs) (laughs) so try try to keep your creations not so amazing (laughs) yeah i'll I'll try i'll try i'll limit my genius (laughs) well we're gonna move now into your penultimate game um and it's a game i have no idea about i've never even heard of it so um, this is going to be very intriguing. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into the second to last game. So your penultimate game that you're going to be taking with you to the island, um, Liam, is a game developed by Pyro Studios and published by Eidos Interactive. It released for the PC in July of 1998. Um, It recently received, uh, well, a few years ago received a release on Steam and most recently on Desura. It's a single-player real-time tactics game developed by Pyro, who are like a Spanish company, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Commandos Behind Enemy Line. Yeah. Now, I've never heard of this game. I don't think I've heard of this franchise either. I think this is rather interestingly, uh, like, it, like when I was like coming up with the list for this, uh, I suddenly remembered this game that I played to death when I was a kid. But it's almost like a a genre that's been entirely lost now. So um, uh, the way it works is uh, you've got a squad of soldiers and uh, you're kind of like uh, like an elite team who uh, goes into um, uh, Nazi-occupied uh, uh, kind of like locations. So like uh, a submarine uh, uh, construction yard or uh, one of them's like... Um, uh, Nazi-occupied Paris, and your uh, your job is that you have kind of like missions that you need to do. So you get like microfilms, or you have to blow up something, or gather intelligence. But you have to use uh, your team, who all have different abilities, uh, to um, basically uh, navigate around the base, taking out guards, and uh, and yeah, trying not to get detected. So it's this sort of um, a uh, sort of uh, isometric stealth game with uh, like several characters and uh, there there were a couple of games like this uh at the time 
Uh, there was one that was like set. There was a Western version. There was a Robin Hood one. Um, but I've, I've I've been racking my brains trying to think of uh, what happened to this genre, and it just seems like it disappeared. But I remember it being so cool because it was it was about there were lots of different approaches to uh, various encounters. So you'd have like guards who had patrols, and you could. Uh, you could throw a packet of cigarettes and they would it would catch the guard's attention and then you could uh knock them out and hide their body in uh like a dumpster or uh you'd have a spy who could um like don the uniform of a soldier and then distract them so that other people could sneak past um and it was always about well how how much chaos can i cause here uh without being caught um is there somewhere to dispose of the bodies? Uh, how many of my men can I sneak past? Uh, what's the timing on that patrol route? Uh, so it just kind of like provided this these sandboxes for you to like improvise and uh, work out how to like reach your objective. And just so much fun. Like every time I play it, I feel like uh, my approach is slightly different. Uh, and I think that's uh, why it will... Uh, uh, be a good game to like take with me and play over and over again it sounds it sounds a bit like jagged alliance um like the jagged alliance series did you ever play that series of games no i've never played the jagged alliance uh games it sounds uh, a little a little like that a bit uh which is also a sort of a series that has become lost in time um the sort of stealth tactic turn-based game series um yeah, I've never really, I've never heard of Commanders before. Um, but I was, I was reading about it, and it's a series that sold over nearly four million copies. Yeah, so it must have been popular at one point, and it generated a lot of money for IDOS at the time. So, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why I missed it. I, <laughs> I think one of the problems was, um, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those interesting things where, um, uh, I think its art style very briefly. Uh, went out of favor we're seeing it come back now but um it was isometric with uh, very primitive 3d character models because obviously it's an old game um against uh like beautifully rendered uh 2d backgrounds that you invited like that you moved through um so the game like if you look at a screenshot of the game uh, it looks gorgeous, but as you're playing it, you start to realise that like all the character models are very, very simple, and that, um, that sort of Icewind Dale type style with their pre-rendered uh, graphics, so it all looks really gorgeous, but the yeah. characters are like really weirdly drawn or really uh, generated characters that sort of look a bit shonky on the on the beautifully rendered world. Yeah, this is it, and. Uh, like what we saw was um, other genres uh, like RPGs uh, move into um, like different territory um, when uh, when we started getting powerful enough machines to render uh, prim- more primitive but fully uh, 3D worlds and uh, the I think part of what makes Commando so appealing is how real these environments feel um, like. Uh, because of how beautifully rendered they are, that wouldn't translate into if it was all like very primitive uh, uh, kind of 3D models. And I get the feeling that that could have been uh, uh, a situation where a genre got lost because um, it wouldn't translate into 
what had become the like in vogue art paradigm of the time, which is a real yeah. shame because uh, like I I don't think every game needs to look the same. I don't know why we suddenly stopped making uh, isomet like gate like two D two point five D isometric games. I think they're uh, they were really strikingly beautiful. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like the fact that there were a couple of like, uh, entire genres that, you know, fell victim to this kind of like dead spot where people, where, I guess like developers were going, we'll never sell a game that looks like this because everyone wants, uh, you know, a fully 3d world. Yeah, it's weird, and that's sort of the only games I can really think of recently that I've come back with that were was um, Pillars of Eternity, that yeah. sort of RPG um, from Obsidian, uh, that just sort of had that that weirdly realistic but also fake computer generated uh, like art style world, which I don't know. It always seemed really mature to me when mm-hmm. I was younger, looking at PC games that had that, those kind of graphics, like extremely mature like people who really liked maybe like fan like fantasy novels and then with commandos like maybe um like military i don't know we're interested in like military type things they were like trying to be as accurate as possible with portraying those types of genres i think this is it like part of it's it's something actually like military history is something i don't have all that much of an interest in but um uh, I think the distance of the camera in Commandos and the uh, um, the attention to detail on uh, the various models definitely does feel like it's appealing. It's attempting to appeal to um, like the model collector out yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, d- yeah, it's, yeah. Like uh, people who collect like miniature models, not like Warhammer, but other s- series of like especially like military painting and stuff like that it definitely looks like that like a like a board like a very realistic detailed board game of a military th- strategy is, game or something i mean there's some like models of like u-boats in that that uh the detail on it is like you get the feeling to certain people it's a vaguely pornographic like <laughs> just like <laughs> it's the sort of thing that they want to like hold in their hands and uh that's part of like one of the things that's uh, obviously the big reward in commandos is uh, being able to um, complete the mission, uh, but uh, like the the kind of like the little rewards along the way are getting to see these tiny details, like the little houses, the uh, uh, like the statues in. Uh, I think there's a level that's set in Burma, and uh, there's all this beautiful architecture, and. Uh, like it's it's really gorgeous to walk around, and uh, it it's just it's a play space that's fun to, uh, like fun and like visually sort of like stimulating, yeah. um, and I don't think as I say I don't think that would have translated as well if they'd uh, gone to a fully three D world. Excellent. Well, talking about real worlds and unrealistic worlds, we're going to move into your final game, which I think is the least mature out of all of the games we've had. Um, you've had a very sort of mature gamer list, like a, a, a strategy, um, like Bloodborne, Gothic Horror, or uh, you know, there were desolate worlds of Fallout Two and stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring the tone down a little bit, and we're gonna 
I think the biggest uh, juxtaposition to this list as possible. We're going to talk about a blue hedgehog, of all things, to finish the show. So let's listen to some excellent music and let's listen to Liam's final game. Final game that you're going to be taking with you, Liam. Uh, the, <laughs> the <laughs> what a game to finish on after the list of excellent <laughs> PC strategy games and talking about the art noir of uh, military buffs and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> the final game we're going to talk about today is developed by Sonic Team and published by Sega. It released in November of 1992 for the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive if you're from the British Isles like we are. Um, it's Sonic the Hedgehog 2. It's another sequel. It is. It is. But there's a good reason why you chose this one over the first one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Liam, please tell me why the final game you're taking with you today is Sonic 2. Yeah. Um, so Sonic 2 over Sonic 1. Um, I just, I, 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 like, there are a lot of sequels in my list. I think part of the reason is uh, you uh, you get a chance to, like, once a game's been out and it's like a finished thing, it's, I don't know. Uh, all of these games feel like they make uh, some big improvements on uh, their predecessors. And sometimes it's just kind of going, well, that bit was fun, so we're going to put more of that in. And sometimes it's doing like utility things, kind of going, that was frustrating, so we're going to make sure that's not in there. But yeah. I, th- I think it does mean that the uh, I do tend to like the second entry in a series quite often more than the first. Uh, but yeah, with Sonic the Hedgehog... Um, I think Sonic is one of those games like I know that there's that there's the classic feud like you're either a Mario fan or a Sonic fan and um I I like both but uh, yeah no I I like both too I de- I I certainly like one more than the other but it doesn't detract from the fact that I also like to sit down and play the other yeah uh, and I think one of the big things is that uh, Sonic uh, moves like no other character in uh that well until that point he moved like no other character that i'd actually played in a platformer like uh the sense of like uh like acceleration and speed and flow that you can get if you can if you can do a sonic level right the way that it's intending you to where you're not getting stopped and you're maintaining your momentum good god it's a great feeling um and uh i think that um sonic 2 uh 
has uh like the best um uh, the best opportunity for those those moments um particularly the uh the second level the chemical plant zone yeah. uh, stage 2 of that if you get it right um you can basically never break your uh uh break your run and you wind up getting to the end of the level having not slowed down pretty much having got 100 coins get yourself a one up nice for nice little bonus for early stages of a game and um and then uh, yeah it just feels amazing and obviously that's not what your first playthrough is like or the playthrough when you're all rusted up and you haven't played in a while like, then you're taking it <laughs> you're taking it slowly and it acts more like a mario level like you're jumping yeah. from platform to platform uh it's very kind of like measured um but I don't think that's the way Sonic is meant to be played. Sonic is the sort of game for people who have played it over and over again. It's for the like 10-year-old kids who Sonic is his only game and he's just like he'll go home and go I guess I'll play Sonic cuz that's the game I have and they just like blast through it. Um and the I think maybe it's because it's it's something that got imprinted on me so early on in life uh the specific type of endorphin rush i get when i do a sonic level right is like like nothing that uh nothing i experience in like other just, video games just when you nail every jump and you, you you don't hit any obstacle you just it's you're like the first jump or the first like spin dash you like dive across the screen, land perfectly, land into another, like almost like ramp to ramp, keep going, keeping, yep. maintaining that speed, that sort of, there's, there's this sort of thing we talked about when we spoke about Prince of Persian, that fluidity of mm -hmm. just perfectly executing everything without being stopped, especially in Sonic, which is a game all about speed. Yeah. Just, ah, oh, there is, uh, there is nothing really like it. It's... Mario is very similar in a sense that when you land, if you time your jump perfectly again, you'll go even further and that kind of thing. But Sonic being about speed and just blazing through levels as fast as you can, there is it's such an, an expert feeling, like so good. Yeah, um, and like I think one of the interesting things is uh, I've definitely always liked the music in Sonic more than Mario, and I think part of it is. Um, uh, it serves it almost serves a functional purpose for me when i'm playing a a sonic level like in mario um the music doesn't it's just something that's happening in the background when i've when i'm in the flow on a sonic level uh, the rhythm that i know i need to hit is linked to the music like if i hear the chemical plant zone music now uh i can almost hear uh like punctuating it like those dang sounds of like the springs that i know that i will hit if i've been if i'm meeting the pace that i know i need to to get that perfect run um and oh yeah but i mean the music's excellent anyway i mean i don't know who created the like sound chip on the genesis but i think they might be a genius because the music <laughs> that it was capable of creating is insanely good there was a weird thing with the with the mega drive and genesis wasn't there that in japan they had uh especially little cartridges uh, like to boost sound chips uh and to give it more power to process music as well i'm really? not sure what games oh, wow. that happened in but 
I don't think Sonic was one of them, but it was still ex- really good music. Yeah. Oh, that's I didn't know about that. That's incredible. But yeah, um, I, I, yeah, there was something about it. I can't remember what game I was. Re- <laughs> I read about a lot of games and weird things that happened. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird because it's, to some people, the Genesis had a, the Genesis tried to sort of emulate bass sounds a lot more than the Nintendo did. Yes. But sometimes because obviously the limitations of the technology, that bass sound maybe sounds like a bit of a wet sound, like a sound yeah. kind of like a weird, not quite right. But Sonic obviously had a lot of like piano key type, uh, definitely happy MIDI sounds. Yeah. Um, and has a soundtrack that will stick with people for a very, very long time. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously we've got um we've got a new Sonic game coming out. Is it Sonic yeah. Mania? Um Yes, Sonic Mania, yeah. Which looks Oh, I can't wait. It looks like the old <laughs> like the Sonic experience. The like maybe Maybe if you'd asked me this, uh, you'd uh, ask for this list uh, in 12 months' time, Sonic 2 would have been substituted for Sonic Mania. Who knows? Like, I can't wait to see what it's like. Well, we'll see next year. And uh, unfortunately, along with it, the um, the next 3D Sonic that will come along and ruin or spoil everyone's yeah, fun. Yeah, let's, let's try not to think <laughs> about that one. <laughs> well, Liam, we have come to the end of your list now and it is time to send you to the place where you're going to spend the rest of your days playing these games which is the island in riven uh, from the mist series but before i let you go i have to ask you the final question that i ask everyone on the show which is about consoles and if you could take one and only one uh bearing in mind the back catalog that obviously comes with each console if you can only take one console barring pc with you to the island, what console would you take? Good lord, that is tough. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's part of me, there's part of me that wants to say the N64, but the fact that I haven't picked a single game that was on it <laughs> is maybe uh, not. Um, I think I'd probably take, uh, uh, boring as it is, I'd probably take the PlayStation Three. Um, the PlayStation Three, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm cheating because uh, they did. A lot, like because it was uh, easy to make it, you know, backwards compatible. A lot of the excellent games from. Oh, are we talking as if it has to be that era as well? So you can't. It has to be that bad. Yeah, you can't have PS2 back catalog. No, I'm sorry. Okay, well it's PS2 then. (laughs) I'm not okay. PS2. (laughs) Because I was going to say like, um, if Shadow of the Colossus that came out on PS3, so I can have that. But no, okay, let's go PS2. Because uh, that has Prince <laughs> of Persia on it. Um, it has a bunch of uh, a bunch of great games. Like I loved the PS2. Oh man, Metal Gear Solid Three. Yeah, no, it's got to be the PS2. <laughs> <laughs> well, the PS3, alongside all of the excellent A games that you've chosen with you today, are yours to take to the island uh, to spend your days walking around like your own walking sim in Riven. <laughs> <laughs> so before i let you go please tell the wonderful people who've listened to the show all about where they can find you on the internet and what they should be checking out especially in a month's time yeah so um you can uh, uh you can find me on twitter i'm uh, liam welton or one word uh i don't tweet very often so i probably won't annoy you um if you want to find out more about uh like my company um 
you can go to www.failbettergames.com. Uh, we've got a free-to-play game uh, on the uh, on the web uh, that's worth uh, checking out because it's yeah. There's lots of more words in it. If you like um, uh, uh, texty RPGs, there are more words in this than the King James Bible. So you can go to fallenlondon.com, <laughs> go play that for free. Uh, and uh, at the end of this month, uh, we're going to be releasing Zub Mariner, the expansion to Sunless Sea. Uh, you can get both of those on Steam, Good Old Games, or Humble Bundle. Uh, uh, and yeah, I encourage you to uh, play those. Um, yeah, I think that's Excellent. it. Well, good luck with the launch of the expansion and keep making some seriously excellent RPG games that... I'm enjoying a lot. I've started playing Sunless Sea this week um, and uh, in preparation, and I found myself uh, putting uh, World of Warcraft Legion to the side and uh, sort of digging in a little more. I'm, I am always so nervous when I play roguelike games and dying, <laughs> even though I absolutely adore them, but I can attest to the quality of the game. And the Eurogamer uh, review is certainly not wrong. So if you are thinking of checking out Sunless Sea, and especially with the new expansion coming out, Definitely do so. Definitely do so. In actual fact, we do have three codes that Hannah was very much, much, uh, very nice to give uh, to us. So I'm going to give them away with this episode of the show. Um, so check out the Final Games Twitter to see if you can nab a free code of Sunless Sea. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the show, the 32nd episode of the show. If you liked this, you can go to iTunes and you can review and rate the show, uh, which really does help. The show is constantly, for some reason now, appearing in the top 30-ish, top 20-ish of the iTunes chart every week, which is pretty crazy. So it's all thanks to your reviews and your rating and all that kind of weird algorithm stuff that happens you can also listen to the show on soundcloud and follow us there if you want to follow me on twitter you can follow me at liambme and you can also follow the show at final games show as well as email final games podcast and gmail.com so thank you very much to my namesake liam for appearing on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and listening to you talk to some games that I, I don't know about. So that is always really interesting for me to hear stories about people who maybe grew up the other side of the console generation or maybe the uh, different side of gaming. Like I wasn't very much into PC games when I was younger. So I sort of missed out on all these excellent PC RTSs and RPGs. So it's always really nice to hear how the other half lives, essentially. <laughs> so Liam, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's been really fun. Thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure and good luck. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Give me a kiss to build a dream on In my imagination will drive upon that kiss mm, Sweetheart, I ask no more than this a kiss the bell, a dream on. Give me a kiss before you leave me, and my imagination will feed my hungry heart. Mm, leave me one thing before we part. A kiss the bell, a dream on. When I'm alone. With my fancies, I'll be with you. 
loving romances. 